Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. As strange as this story may seem, this is a work of nonfiction with no invented dialogue. Every reenactment you hear comes from government files, archives, diaries, letters, newspaper articles, books, or trial testimony. It's 1924, a wintry January day in Georgia, as George and Imogene Remus step off the train. Remus stares in wonder at the building that will be his home for the next two years, the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Bars clamped over the windows look like gritted teeth, and Remus sees arms protruding between them, waving eagerly. In Remus's mind, the prisoners inside are giving him an ovation, a rousing greeting for the newest and most famous prisoner, the King of the Bootleggers. And he acts like a king the minute he goes inside. Remus knows the warden is Albert Sartain, appointed to the post by U.S. Attorney General Harry Dougherty. Remus has been paying bribes to Dougherty's underlings for years, so he figures Sartain is an easy mark, too. He greases Sartain's palm and gets himself assigned to a private cell in a section of the prison known as Millionaire's Row. His immediate neighbor is another bootlegger, Willie Haar, the leader of a notorious southern bootlegging ring called the Savannah Four. He sends Imogene out to buy a new mattress, blankets, and a set of fine sheets for his bunk. An additional 2500 bucks to Sartain buys him his own refrigerator, a private bath, a prized job in the library, and the privilege of eating his meal separate from the rest of the inmates. But even these comforts do nothing to calm his fevered mind. Every day, he has what he calls brainstorms, powerful zaps of energy that spark without warning and buzz like flies inside his skull. He goes a little crazier every night, lying on his silken sheets and letting his resentments create threatening voices in his head. And in the dark of the wee hours, he talks to himself in the third person, as if he's narrating his own story. 
Remus, paid millions to buy his way, was inside prison walls while those who had made it possible for him to act were enjoying the wealth made possible by the operations of Remus. The longer he stays in prison, the worse his brainstorms get. I'm Abbott Kaler, and this is Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. In jail, Remus lived in a kind of opulence that other prisoners could only imagine. Still, his worried mind was breaking him in two. Imogene was his only comfort. She had taken a suite at the Georgian Terrace Hotel and came to see him nearly every day. She'd bring flowers, some roast chicken, a cake. On days she didn't visit, they spoke on the phone. They spent hours talking. Remus paid extra bribes, 500 or 1,000 bucks at a time, for the warden to let Imogene into the prison. She'd cook for her husband and scrub the floor of his cell on her hands and knees. She called him daddy loud enough for everyone to hear. It pleased Remus to see the other prisoners notice her. They called her the angel of the pen. But undercurrents of tension ran through all their conversations. Remus adored her, loved her with all his heart, but his fevered mind would not let him trust her completely. For every declaration of love he threw Imogene's way, there would also be an abusive, cutting remark. One evening, Remus got a phone call from Imogene's sister. Why does my sister cry after she's seen you? Why is she unable to sleep? For a moment, Remus wouldn't answer. Then he finally spoke. Because she doesn't understand me. The more distressed Imogene became, the less often she showed up at the penitentiary. She made trips back to Cincinnati, checking on the mansion and looking in on her 16-year-old daughter, Ruth, who was still boarding at the elite Sacred Heart Academy. When she did come back to Atlanta, she holed up in her hotel suite. She visited Remus only briefly, or stayed away altogether until her anger subsided. Her absence tormented Remus. He atoned the only way he knew how, by retreating to his cell to compose effusive letters to her. Rambling, florid letters, sometimes almost incoherent. To the only true and sweetest little girl in the whole dear world, to the apple of my eye, not one, but both. Little one, you do not know what it means to have you away from me long. My nerves are one mass of tension. You must by all means forgive me for my spontaneous combustion of the mind, sweet And dear, little one, nothing more than a brainstorm predicated upon no substantial facts. Sweet one, I did not know this would be so horrible. I crave you. I would devour you. I care only for you, a human madness. All other matters are infinitesimal against you. And only you. I wish I had you in my arms to squeeze so tightly, so dearly, so tenderly. How great and glorious it would be. I tremble with emotion, you bundle of sweetness. Jean, I want you near me. To hell with the world. She had always forgiven his temper, but things were different now. He was trapped, she was free, and Remus didn't like it. Trouble was also brewing for Mabel Willenbrandt and her boss, Attorney General Dougherty. Dougherty's assistant, Jess Smith, had died by suicide, 
but the bribes he had taken from Remus finally landed his boss in trouble. In March 1924, a Senate committee called a hearing to investigate Dougherty's misconduct. One of the main witnesses was Gaston Means, a former agent for the Bureau of Investigation who had been Jess Smith's partner as he shook down Remus and other bootleggers. Means was awaiting trial on charges of violating the Volstead Act. Means described the late President Harding's clandestine activities, how he served booze to his guests and poker buddies in the White House. But Means held back when asked about Smith's and Dougherty's involvement in taking bribes from bootleggers. Remus followed the hearings in the news, and he was outraged. Remus knew all the dirt on Smith and Dougherty, and, unlike Gaston Means, he wanted to spill it. During Imogene's next visit, he shared his frustration and assigned her a task. Send a telegram to the committee suggesting that they might want to hear from the bootlegger George Remus, who knew well the system of graft payments coordinated by Means and Smith. She should sign the telegram John Adams, in honor of the nation's second president known to be an ardent drinker who began every morning with a mug of hard cider. Imogene did as instructed, and Remus waited for the subpoena to come. When it came, Remus boarded a train to Washington. Despite his desire to testify, Remus was nervous. He confessed that since he entered prison, his mind had not been normal. He declared that all that is sacred and holy had been taken from him. He chastised America as a nation of hypocrites. Every person who has one ounce of whiskey in his possession is a bootlegger. Not one scruple of liquor prescribed by physicians is ever used for medicine. He delivered the answers that the committee wanted to hear. He spoke of Jessmus many promises, including his assurance that Dougherty would intervene should Remus find himself in deep legal trouble. He described the generous checks he'd given to Smith for bribe payments. The committee pressed him. You never had any doubt about his influence? There was none from my viewpoint. And you have been double-crossed. <clears throat> Remus paused and thought about Jess Smith, lifeless on the floor of his room at the Willard Park Hotel in Washington. Then he answered. I don't know. The dead don't speak. But if the committee is interested, I would be happy to produce the checks. I stored them in good, secluded spots. Dougherty resigned in disgrace. Soon, Mabel Willenbrand had a new boss, Attorney General Harlan Stone. She focused her energy on bringing more charges against Remus and his gang for selling bootleg whiskey from the Jack Daniels Distillery in St. Louis. Her special agent there, Franklin Dodge, had fed her enough information to make the case. Willenbrand issued indictments for 17 people, including Remus and Imogene. On the evening of May 21st, Deputy U.S. Marshals knocked on the door of the Remus Mansion. Deputies informed Imogene she was under arrest for conspiring to violate the Volstead Act. She pleaded with the Marshals, insisting that she could prove she was at home with Ruth and not at the distillery in St. Louis. She claimed she knew very little about her husband's business. The agents didn't buy it. The next morning, out on bail, Imogene issued a statement. I had nothing to do with the alleged conspiracy to purchase the Jack Daniels Distillery at St. Louis. Whatever business transactions I have had, either as to real estate or otherwise, were at the direction of Mr. Remus, and so far as I'm concerned, they were all perfectly proper. I regret exceedingly my name was mentioned in the case, for while Mr. Remus knows I had nothing to do with it, Daddy has trials and tribulations enough without adding this to his burdens. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, Imogene's daddy was busy. 
and troubling reports were going to Willembrandt in Washington. Remus was getting special privileges, but worse, he was also obstructing justice in the Jack Daniels case, threatening potential witnesses to keep them quiet. With Remus intimidating potential witnesses, Willembrandt sent Franklin Dodge to Atlanta with two jobs, to investigate the corruption in the Atlanta pen and to salvage the Jack Daniels investigation. He had studied Remus intently and would know how to handle him. Remus got some happy news from his neighbor on Millionaire's Row, the Savannah bootlegger Willie Har. One night over dinner, Har told Remus that a new federal agent had arrived at the penitentiary, purportedly to investigate corruption among prison officials. Har knew the man because he had worked undercover as a bootlegger in Savannah, although Har had the good sense to recognize the ruse and steer clear of him. From what Har understood, the agent was approachable and amenable to bribes. If Remus provided certain information about crooked officials, the agent might reward him. The next day, Har pointed out the agent, and Remus realized he also knew the man. He had seen him in Cincinnati, parked outside of the mansion, day and night, an ominous presence invading his life. Finally, Remus learned his name, Franklin Dodge. He sent a message that Agent Dodge was welcome to visit him anytime. Franklin Dodge somehow managed to appear both intimidating and inviting at the same time. Like Remus, he was flashy in dress and boisterous in conversation. But unlike Remus, there was an ease about Dodge, the kind of confidence bestowed only upon those with deep connections and old money, allowing him to wander through life unquestioned and undenied. Supremely confident, Dodge put on an assured silence during his first meeting with Remus, letting the bootlegger take the lead. Remus spoke in a brusque, conspiratorial whisper. I have information you might find very useful. Would you be interested to know that Remus secured whiskey permits from the Prohibition Director of Ohio and that several federal officials were complicit in these deals? Interesting. Tell me more. I could provide you with paperwork that proves every bit of this. I could also testify to the rampant corruption that goes on inside this very penitentiary. Okay, go on. In exchange, I want your influence in Washington. A commutation of my sentence, or even a full pardon. I can't promise anything, but I'll be back to talk again. While he waited for his next meeting with Dodge, Remus called upon his truest and sweetest. During Imogene's next visit, he confided to her about Dodge and issued an order. I want you to cultivate Franklin Dodge. Play up to him, because he is the last chance to help me get out of jail. Imogene did indeed cultivate Dodge, but not quite in the way Remus had hoped. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. 
That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Mabel Willebrandt was keeping her eye on a young man in the Bureau of Investigation one she thought had the potential to become the director. She wrote to the new attorney general, Harlan Stone, and urged him to promote the young deputy. He is honest and informed, and one who operates like an electric wire with almost trigger response. Stone wrote back. Everyone says he's too young. Maybe that's his asset. Apparently, he hasn't learned to be afraid of the politicians. He wasn't and never would be. His name was J. Edgar Hoover and at age 29, he became director of the Bureau. Hoover had grand plans to remake and modernize the Bureau and told Stone he intended to identify and dismiss all crooked agents. Every effort will be made by employees of the Bureau to strengthen the morale and to carry out to the letter your policies. When Franklin Dodge filed a report about his meeting with Remus, Hoover read it. He was impressed. Dodge had acquired enough information from Remus to indict 11 men for conspiracy to violate the Volstead Act. The report also included evidence that Warden Sartain was providing perks to Remus and other wealthy bootleggers. It seemed to Hoover that Dodge was one of the honest agents, a true asset to the Bureau. In December of 1924, Remus and his bootlegger friend Willie Haar testified in a closed grand jury hearing against Warden Sartain. The warden resigned, but still faced criminal prosecution. Willembrandt sent Remus and Haar 60 miles east to Athens for their own protection until it was time for them to testify. Unbeknownst to Willembrandt, her prisoners were housed in an old hospital where the Athens deputies allowed them even more luxuries than in the Atlanta pen. Remus and Haar enjoyed their own private two-room suites and a uniform made to cook and serve their meals. They held dinner parties in the hospital chapel inviting their gang members as guests. At the appointed hour, they gathered around a long table draped with a lace runner and adored with fresh flowers, replenished often by Imogene. They could even entertain prostitutes, an indulgence that Har often took advantage of, while Remus remained true to Imogene. In Athens, Imogene was permitted free access to his rooms and an occasional stay overnight. While in Georgia, she also made time for John's to Atlanta, where Franklin Dodge was still gathering evidence against Warden Sartain for the upcoming trial. When Imogene was in Atlanta, Remus called her every night, often keeping her on the line for an hour and a half. He inquired about their plan. Are you still cultivating Franklin Dodge? Well, Daddy, I think Mr. Dodge will be able to do you some good. He let his mind conjure scenes of a pardon or early parole, handed down from on high by Washington, stamped with Mabel Willenbrandt's signature. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, Imogene conjured different things entirely. In the serene hush of the chapel, 
George Remus and Willie Har sat down to dinner. As the maid refilled their glasses, Har leaned forward and said there was something Remus ought to know. Remus waited, his fork poised in the air. George, I've been hearing that Mrs. Remus is engaging in some, shall we say, misconduct with Franklin Dodge. Our friends here in the pen are corroborating this. They've seen them together. I don't believe you. Imogene is just doing what I told her to do. Silently, Har studied Remus's face, watching a crimson flush spread across his skin. Remus stood, dropped his linen napkin, and retreated to his room. He wanted revenge, not on Imogene, but on Har, whether his words were true or not. He picked his opportunity. One day, he saw a prostitute slip through Har's door. Remus waited and seethed, the confrontation looming in his mind. As soon as the woman left, Remus barged into Har's room and yelled, Your visitor has contaminated the air where my wife is. He propelled himself at Har with the force and velocity of a cannonball, his arms retracting and releasing and fist connecting, that smack of skin again and again. He wanted to crack Har's skull. He pulled back again, preparing the strike, but felt his limbs pinned behind him. The guards pried him from Har and hauled him back to his room. By the following evening, Remus had apologized, and the two bootleggers met once again in the prison chapel to share a quiet dinner. Back in Atlanta, prepared to testify at Warden Sartine's trial, Remus and Har were put up in another hotel, the Robert Fulton. The prisoners were free to roam the streets until their 8 p.m. curfew, but the deputies led Har and his associates out at night, too. Remus, for reasons unknown, was kept on evening lockdown in his room. Remus banged at the door and pleaded to be let out, but the three deputies outside his room would not budge. Unnerved, Remus talked to Har about the situation. Are you going out at night? Yes. I don't understand why all of you men can go out at night. Har promised to ask around for some answers. After the trial, which ended in Sartain's conviction, Willenbrand sent Remus and Har back to Athens until things in Atlanta cooled down. Imogene took the train home to Cincinnati and stayed longer this time. Feverishly, Remus wrote to her, but unlike before, Imogene did not reply to every missive. Her absence became its own entity. His obsessive thoughts of Imogene haunted him, conquering his mind. He kept writing. He couldn't stop himself. My only wife. You know very well, no matter how often you phone or wire, I do extremely expect a letter in between moments. I will judiciously obey all of your injunctions and restrictions with an obedience that is alarming even unto you. How is Ruthie? I hope she is home, and your beautiful and faithful care is only you can give it. I only wish that you and I were back again. It seems to me as though it will be much longer than we expected it to be. At dinner one night, Har finally told Remus that he'd learned the truth about what happened at the Robert Fulton Hotel. It was Agent Franklin Dodge who had ordered the guards to let everyone out at night but Remus. Not only that, but one of Har's men had spotted Imogene often in Dodge's company, lingering over lunch, sitting side by side in the courtroom, strolling the streets of Atlanta, laughing and taking their time. Remus felt his world begin to crumble, a swarm of questions pecked at his mind. 
Remus put his fork down and aimed his gaze at Har. I don't think my wife is treating me right. I don't know what she's doing. Troubling reports also began to reach Mabel Willenbrandt's office. Rumors about misconduct on the part of Franklin Dodge. She was rattled. Dodge had been her most skilled and reliable special agent, someone whose character had seemed as impeccable as his performance. But she couldn't ignore what she was hearing. The report said Dodge was engaging in a variety of unsavory behaviors, conducting business with bootleggers, accepting bribes, even consorting with George Remus's wife, Imogene. Willenbrand had already indicted Imogene in the upcoming Jack Daniels matter, and she could not let Dodge mess up her case. She had to act, so she sent other agents to spy on Dodge. Their first meeting was with a car thief named E.J. Sweeney, who was doing time in the Atlanta pen and had worked with Dodge previously as an informant. Sweeney told them that in February 1925, Imogene had invited him to a party she'd planned at an Atlanta hotel. She seemed pleased that Dodge had already accepted. Sweeney caught up with Dodge alone and advised him not to go. Frank, you're getting yourself in a hot spot. If George ever finds out that you're mixing up in company with his wife, he will shoot you. (laughs) Old kid, if you don't want to come, you don't have to, but I am going. Reluctantly, Sweeney dropped into the party for a few moments and discovered that all the prisoners who had testified against Warden Sartain were there, except for one, George Remus. The next night, Dodge asked Sweeney to accompany him to Cleveland to help with another prohibition case. The men met on the train platform. Sweeney noticed that Dodge had two tickets for the drawing room, a luxurious and spacious sleeping car. Sweeney pointed at the tickets. What do you want the drawing room for? Why would you want to go to the expensive paint for? Dodge smirked. I didn't pay for these. Mrs. Remus did. Is she going with you? Well, I'm not going alone. Frank... Imogene Remus is a scheming woman. She's simply trying to trap you and place you in a position where she can force you to use your influence on behalf of George. Dodge just laughed. He turned away and boarded the train. Willenbrand got the report about Sweeney, and then another even more damning report about Dodge's behavior in Cleveland. The clerk at the Hollandon Hotel, where Dodge was staying, realized that an unmarried couple was in room 902 which was against house rules. The clerk barged into the room and saw that Dodge had his trousers on, but his fly was open and his belt wasn't buckled. The clerk confronted Imogene, who was in bed. Why did you allow this man to be in your room when you knew it was the order of the hotel not to have any men visit at this hour in the morning? I intend to marry him. He's my fellow. He happened to be in town and he came over to see me. Willenbrand also learned that Dodge had accepted money and whiskey from the bootlegger Willie Har. Furthermore, Dodge planned to go into business with Har as soon as the bootlegger left prison. And in the final report, Willenbrand heard more about Dodge's disturbing relationship with Imogene Remus. Ruth Remus's boyfriend claimed that he had met, quote, Mr. Dodge at the Remus mansion in Cincinnati. The boyfriend watched Imogene and Dodge rush from room to room, lifting paintings from walls clutching stacks of papers, pushing furniture around, packing boxes. At one point, Dodge called the boy over and asked for help in carrying a trunk from the second floor to the first. Only later did he learn that everything in the trunk belonged to George Remus. During this same visit, Imogene pulled the boyfriend aside. Please don't mention to anyone that you've seen me here with Mr. Dodge 
people might misunderstand. He's simply doing some business for me, and I'd never want anyone to think we're just going around together. He is a very nice and well-educated man. I think he can be a great assistance to me in a lot of respects. On August 10th, 1925, Mabel Willembrandt requested and accepted Franklin Dodge's resignation from the Department of Justice. The press and public so far remained unaware that he was under investigation, and Willembrandt hoped it would never come to light. If it did become known, the public would blame her for her bad judgment in hiring Dodge, while giving Dodge a pass for his bad behavior. The negative publicity would hurt not only her career, but also the careers of women who hoped to follow in her footsteps. She was not willing to sacrifice herself in ways that her male colleagues never would. Two weeks later, Imogene visited Remus one last time at the Atlanta Penitentiary. He was 10 days away from being released. She went to the office of the new warden, John Snook, and asked to see Remus. Snook had instituted a policy that all of Remus's visits must be conducted in the warden's office. Snook summoned a guard and told him to fetch the prisoner. Remus entered the office and sat down in a chair across from Imogene. Snook sat at his desk within earshot. Why haven't you been staying in Cincinnati where I could reach you by telegram? I telegraphed and was unable to reach you. I went to Michigan with some friends. This is important business. My liberty is at stake. I want you to stay in Cincinnati where I can reach you so that you can handle my business. Their conversation grew more heated with every word. Snook saw Imogene get up and start inching backward toward his desk. Remus was ranting, and she leaned toward Snook and whispered, I'm afraid of him. He threatened to strike me. Remus overheard. I won't strike you. I have no reason to. Then Remus softened his voice. You're my little honey bunch. You're my little bunch of sugar. Snook told her to take her seat and finish the conversation. Imogene did as she was told, but pushed her chair farther away from her husband. Remus produced a sheath of papers and gave her instructions about various business matters back in Cincinnati. Then he reached into his pocket. My little sweetness, I want you to wear this diamond ring. Think of it as a token of what's to come. I'll soon be out of here and we will get to enjoy that new, quiet life we've dreamed about. Imogene didn't say a single word. She just took the ring, kissed him, and walked away. Later that afternoon, Snook got a package addressed to Remus. Inside, he found a petition for divorce from Imogene. The papers were accompanied by a note that seemed quite odd after their visit. George, after our conversation today, it is very plain that you have lost confidence in me. And as you told me to go ahead and file for divorce, I think I will follow your advice. If at any time I can assist you, please let me know. My heart weighs too heavy to say any more. One day, Remus would look back on this moment and mark it as the onset of his diseased mind. On this date, November 23rd, 1927, this session of the Criminal Division of Common Pleas Court in Hamilton County will come to order. I call Mrs. Olive Weber Long to testify. State whether or not you saw Mrs. Remus at your sister's home. 
Well, I saw her there several times. Do you recall an occasion when you heard Mrs. Remus call somebody in Cincinnati with reference to Mr. Remus? Hmm, she was on the telephone at the time I entered the room. She said, did you get in touch with my lawyers there? Well, I will take care of him. Never mind. Don't worry about it. I will take care of him. Then what did she do? Well, with that, she hung up the phone. She said to me that she had Remus just exactly where she wanted him, the poor boob. She said also that if he kept fooling around the way he did, she would take care of him, and that she could shoot him and then plead self-defense. After making that statement, what did she next do? Well, then she took the telephone and put in a long-distance call to Franklin Dodge at Lansing, Michigan. She said, Franklin, do you love me? Are you sure that you love me? How much do you love me? And she was sitting on the bed, and she said, say it again. And then she reached over the bed right alongside of me, and she put the receiver to my ear. I heard the gentleman's voice say, You know I love you, dear. So, after she hung up, she said to me, Don't you think he has a marvelous voice? He is so wonderful. After hanging up the receiver, did she say anything else to you? She repeated many times over again that she had Remus just where she wanted him. Next time on Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. Daddy wouldn't hurt me. Daddy's good to me. But please, don't let him hurt Mr. Dodge. Please. My heart was being eaten out of me because I did love this woman. But that pimped Dodge, that social pervert, that social leper, that social parasite, I would mash him flat as a pancake, absolutely. Feel this muscle. I got this for Remus. I could crush him like an egg. That's for Remus when he's ready. Remus, the Mad Bootleg King is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. It's hosted by me, Abbott Kaler. Chuck Reese and I wrote the show. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Sound design and mix by Chris Childs. Elise McCoy composed original music. Additional scoring by Chris Childs. Voices in this episode provided by Ben Bolin, Lauren Vogelbaum, Julia Criscal, Dylan Fagan, Noel Brown, Matt Frederick, Brittany Wilkerson, Zubin Hensler, Charles Edwards, Nate Beagle, Chuck Reese, Tiago Macklin, Mike Coscarelli, and Nicole Britton. Casting support services provided by Breakdown Services. Special thanks to John Higgins from Curiosity Stream and the team at CDM Studios in New York. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give it a review in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.